Hello, and welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast. I'm Adam Huss, coming to you from Los Angeles, California. Thank you so much for listening. I want to give a special thank you to those of you who have begun supporting this podcast by subscribing to our Patreon. Your support is the soil that makes it possible for this podcast to flourish. And I hope that you know by equating you with dirt, that's one of the highest compliments I can give you. If you're not already a Patreon supporter, I'll include the link in the show notes. Thank you so much. Also, we have some great sponsors for this episode. Oom is a company that is making it possible for the wine industry to begin reusing glass bottles. Go to oom.earth. That stands for Our Only Mission is Earth. Go to oom.earth and let them know you've heard about them here. Also, Catavino Tours is a sponsor, and they offer luxury wine and food tours in Portugal and Spain. And you can support this podcast by checking them out and, and having a fantastic time on a tour with them by going to catavinotours, with an S, dot com slash O-W-P. And I saved our sponsor, Vermont Vineyards, for last, because for this episode, they are topical. Vermont Vineyards is a family-run business owned and operated out of small-town Vermont. They design and install vineyards of all shapes and sizes, and they aim to reduce the stigmas attached to hybrid grape varieties in New England wine regions. Check them out at vtvineyardswithans.com slash O-W-P, all lowercase. That's vtvineyards.com slash O-W-P. Now, when I think of Vermont, I think of slanted light and moody skies, wildflowers and rosy cheeks, small farms and big forests. And because of my guest for this episode, when I think of Vermont, I also think of hearty vines and delicious wines. Deirdre Heakin is the person behind La Garagista and Domaine de la Forêt, along with her husband Caleb, and what seems to be a continual stream of young winemakers who help and learn and have become the next generation of Vermont wine. Deirdre is a restaurateur, vigneron, writer, photographer, mentor, gardener, and more. And that means we cover a lot of ground in this conversation. We talk about the magic of the forest, and why grapevines are integral to the forest edge ecology that we aim to replicate with holistic regenerative agriculture. We talk about Deirdre's approach to farming Brianna, which involves not pruning it. Very interesting. She also shares some of the unique approaches she has developed for making cider and wine and co-ferments and other things that don't even have names by gleaning from ancient techniques and by learning from nature and the opportunities it presents to work with it to create one-of-a-kind fermentations. Enjoy. Oh, and just a special note, there was a bit of an audio delay between the two of us when we were recording, so at times we talk over each other and overlap each other a bit. It's not terrible, just want to give you a heads up, but it shouldn't prevent you from enjoying this wonderful conversation with Deirdre Heakin. Deirdre, thanks for doing this. Welcome. Thank you so much, Adam. It's great to be here. I am really excited to talk to you because I feel like so many of the, the, so much of your journey, though, you know, we're obviously very different people and different things, but, and so there's so much reflection of my own in what you're doing. And I guess maybe if as a way of warming up i'd love if you wanted to sort of describe wh what's happening where you are and what's happening on the farm this time of year like you know in any way that you'd like to okay um well it's a well, it always seems to be a busy time on the farm i keep trying to figure out when a downtime is but uh right now we are just on the very verges of spring 
we uh, the farm is comprised of four different parcels. We have uh, the home farm, which is the, the main place where the winery is and our original vineyard. And then we have a vineyard right across the road. And those are both up here in the mountains. So we're on a certain time schedule up here. And then we also have two parcels down in the Champlain Valley. Uh, in the mountains, we're at 1,600 feet. The Champlain Valley is just a little bit above sea level. So that's at a very different hmm. uh time and place in its season at the moment. Uh, so we start getting spring uh, anywhere from, well, it used to be a month earlier than in the mountains, but now it's about two weeks, I would say. So we've been two or mm. three weeks without snow down in the valley. We've got daffodils and tulips starting to poke up. We've got willow trees that are that sort of beautiful chartreuse green and we are still in pruning mode over there. Uh, we prune, we have a very long pruning session, <laughs> as it were. Uh, we try and start at some point in December, and we're working pretty much up until mid-May between all the parcels. So in the valley, we have all this uh, spring actually really starting to happen. And then up here in the mountains, we still have you know, I'm looking at my window, it's probably about eight inches to a foot of snow in places. Uh, we have a lot of bare ground also. I can see into the orchard and underneath the apple trees, it's bare, but then you see lots of white snow. And we're still pruning here. Wow. Uh, and I did notice over the weekend that as the snow was starting to recede up here, that we've got daffodil daffodils starting to to poke up out of the ground whereas in the valley the the flower heads are already up and they're about in fact when i go there tomorrow i'm sure they're going to be blooming so uh we sort of get these two springs in terms of the climate which is fun and interesting mm. and gives us this sort of beautiful extended period but uh yeah, yeah so anything um, that extends spring is is okay by me <laughs> it, it, it is it is good so we've got we've got that happening and we've got pruning in all places we also are waiting to bottle cider uh and our co-fermentations we the way we make our cider we do a lot of the work from january through march and then we're in a period of waiting for sugars to drop so that we can bottle for sparkling so before talking to you this morning, I was up in the winery checking bricks on all of those cuvées. And uh, so that's happening. We're starting to disgorge pet gnats. We're doing a little bit of travel uh, for sales. Um, Caleb's got seeds starting for the gardens. And we were just talking this morning at our morning meeting about starting to dig holes for some new planting that we're doing. So, so we've got kind of a lot, a lot going on. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, <laughs> um, it, and, and I should say it's April tenth. Uh, yes, as a, just a frame of reference for whenever yeah. this comes out. Um, so uh, now you've got my mind curious about some things that I'll I'll just riff on before I forget. But the cider. So because you're not inoculating, I'm imagining it's just a slow ferment. Is that what's happening? You you've got you started in late winter, and then it just takes this long. Exactly. So we have a process that we do with our later apples. 
in which we hold them, we try and finish picking them in November. Sometimes we go into December and we hold them for a period of time out in the cold. They live in a barn and they freeze and thaw, freeze and thaw, freeze and thaw with the fluctuations of the diurnal temperatures here and whether we're freezing right. or thawing, because um, there is such a thing here known as the January thaw. And we wait for a certain amount of time uh, until the fruit has really concentrated. And then the apples come into the winery, they completely thaw, they get ground into mash, and then they go into open fermenters where they will hang out for anywhere from you know two weeks to two or three months. Um, and then they get pressed off. And after pressing, then they're at a certain amount of sugar. I think this year we had one of the highest bricks that we've ever had for apples. I think they came in. Yeah. Well, yeah. After press, they were at about 17. Or at the beginning too. Right. Exactly. Oh, after Um, press, you're at 17. They were at 17. (laughs) Uh, And normally, yeah, we're hitting like maybe 13, 14. So um, then it's just, it is very cool in the, in the winery at this time of year. So it's this sort of lovely, long, slow ferment. And we start, if we're doing co-ferments, so for example, for me, when I co-ferment with wine, I'm taking a base wine that I've made in the fall of, say, 2022, and I am blending that with this new cider that's just come off the press. And I'm either blending to the exact bricks that I want for bottling at that moment, or I'm blending to what I think is the right flavor profile in that moment and then waiting for the sugar to drop as it co-ferments together. It just kind of depends on what our sugar sugar levels are and how much of cider we have, how much of the still wine that we have. So it's a really it's a really interesting process. Yeah, it sounds really interesting. The when you say blending for immediate bottling, so you're using the the apple juice cider as a sort of a uh, tirage for exactly. sparkling. Exactly, but it might end up Got being it. a 50-50 blend. Got it. Okay. So it's not just a little um, soupçon of it's not cider. just a dose. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so it might be a significant quantity, but um, but it would allow us to uh, control our bottling schedule rather than being um, beholden to it, which we are at the moment. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. I feel that. Uh. Yeah. Yeah. But I really, you know, I, I, I love this process because we're constantly looking for more ways to work with our environment and our climate with both the wine and cider and being able to use the cold weather in this way. It has been um, a really beautiful revelation and evolution. Oh, I love that. I mean, I love the idea because I think so much of what how your journey has been and and your approach to wine, as it seems, and you know, please feel free to correct me and expound upon this, but it seems to be this study of nature and how to, um, you know, how that how you integrate your life into it rather than the other way around, and and you know, starting with with food and the way that food can just be this thing that surrounds you is abundant in your world because you're you're essentially walking through a landscape uh, of of delights basically yeah um, that's really beautifully I, said I, I'm one of the, steal that. 
love that, <laughs> that idea of that um and 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 really accurate i mean it is all a study of nature and our environment and how i can be a part of that and work with it rather than impose my own notions upon it and try and control it and i'm always um kind of surfing that edge of what is wild uh and mm. that to me is where the interest is and the creativity is it's like thinking about forest edge ecology that methodology and that belief that the excitement of the natural world happens on the forest edge and that's what mm. i and we are 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 looking for in the way that we're approaching our farming the way we approach approach our cellar work the way we approach life it's funny i yeah yeah i I, I recently was reading, and I, I wish I could remember what I was reading, but um, the author was talking about how they, you know, they were from a suburban environment, and they're like, I'm going to go see the abundance of nature. And they hiked out into the middle of like a wilderness area of just forest. And they were like, they didn't hear a bird. They didn't see an animal. <laughs> it was just trees. You know, it was just a canopy and, you know, a bare floor in the yeah. deep forest and they were like what is going on like I, in my suburban you know backyard there's more going on than this and that's when they started learning about forest edge ecology and how you know like tending the wild uh, you know to to borrow that term um from mcat anderson is is really you know managing the entire you know will you know ecosystem uh, for that abundance of the forest edge ecology and i've, I've I really love that idea as well. I mean, yeah, so yeah. much of like, I think what you talk about with um, your approach being this permaculture biodynamic approach is that like the food forest, food garden thing is, is that for, you know, having a continual forest edge in the entire landscape. Right. And it's all and, collaborative. Um, it's all collaborative. All those plants yeah. and the flora right. and fauna you know, whether it's wild animal life or uh, raised animal life uh, that's part of your ecosystem, they all speak to each other. And that's where that excitement and creativity is, I think. you. One of the things that I was reading from you that really intrigued me was you talked about this old wild vine that was an inspiration um, for you sort of a muse for the entire farm can you can you talk about that that is that is that accurate what it, i've said it, it is i walk by that vine every and visit that vine every day uh or almost every day it i think it was that vine and vines like it that are on our property really brought home for me that vines are a part of my landscape naturally, wildly, historically. When I first started thinking about making wine, and there there was a wine community here before us that had done a lot of hard work, had put in a lot of infrastructure, figured out what kinds of varieties would work here. Everybody I had talked to, and especially since we have such a big cider community here and orchards are such a big thing, a lot of people would say that you know, vines were the interlopers, you know, cider was a more natural companion as a fermented beverage for the world of New England, the world of Vermont. And when I 
really zeroed in on the fact that vines have been here natively uh, since essentially the beginning of time, <laughs> uh, and that apples actually are imported here. They are not. Uh, they've taken very well, but they're not. They're not indigenous to this part of the world. It really struck right. me, um, and being able to see that particular vine on our property, and we've got some other vines that go down the the stream bed, and then I started seeing them everywhere here. You know, you see them in the hedgerows, yeah. yes. you see them in the forest, you see them on the highway. <laughs> um, they they yeah. literally are everywhere. And that was really, um, yes, inspiring and made me understand how much a part grapevines are to this landscape. And that even though the vines that I work with are hybrids and they're crosses, they contain that the DNA of those wild vines that grow here. They contain that family yeah. history. And to me, that's a, a pretty wonderful and exciting thing. Yeah, I really love that as well. I'm definitely inspired by them as too. And when you're right, like once you start seeing them, you can't unsee them. You're, you see them right. everywhere you get vine exactly. eyes kind of thing. It's like mushroom eyes, mushroom hunting eyes. Yeah, yeah. Um, the... I, the the thing that I find really interesting that I, I guess I share with you to a certain extent is how gardening sort of lured you in like, you know, piece by piece into, it seems like, I mean, you know, again, correct me if I'm wrong, if this is, if I'm, you know, fishing for something that isn't true, but I, I found for myself that like, I learned so many important lessons uh, just in, in gardening and just and there's something as I started really analyzing or or just thinking hard about what why that was, especially I mean how it informed my viticulture and everything else. Um, you know, outlook on life was it was something about working in the dirt and also learning what it took to grow food, grow you know to grow it well to be able to actually provide for yourself. Um, do you, did you have that experience? I mean, can you relate to that? Does that resonate as well? Yeah, totally. We started gardening here at the farm. Uh, well, well, Caleb and I had a restaurant for about 20 years. And we started gardening about two years after we opened our spot, which started out as a, as a bakery and a restaurant. And part of the impetus for gardening, and we had gardened before, um, you know, for vegetables and for vegetables for our, ourselves, uh, but for the restaurant at that time, this is in the late 90s, we were wanting to grow really specific vegetables for our menu. And they were vegetables that we had, varieties of vegetables that we had come across while living and working in Italy. And at that time, <laughs> for example, nobody was growing radicchio. Uh, now, of course, everybody's mm -hmm. growing radicchio. Uh, but it, in you know 1998, uh, 1999, that was really hard to come by, uh, particularly here in Vermont. Mm. So we started uh, growing things that were part of the Italian kitchen. And the vegetables led to fruit trees, led to wanting to be a part and have a role in shaping the landscape that we were living on. And, you know, I think you, you were saying something about this progression <laughs> leading you down yeah. a path. 
And I think by the time I got to planting vines, you know, I felt comfortable enough being, I had tons to learn and still have so much to learn about all kinds of gardening, whether that's in the orchard or roses or vegetables, what, what have you, vines. But I, I felt comfortable enough to plant vines without really knowing what I was doing um, because I hadn't had any study of that process. Uh, I knew from being a, my, in, in my career as a wine director and a wine educator, wine educator, I knew enough about the cycles of the vineyard, but I had never had an opportunity to do it myself. So I really only knew the the treetops, if you will. <laughs> so um, those first <laughs> few years were um, incredibly informative, you know, even having a little bit of the gardening experience that I already had. Because as you well know, working with perennial plants is a completely different story than working with annual plants. And that's not something that I think most yeah. people think about. Yeah. It's so different that I, I actually feel like I made the same mistakes twice because there are some similarities, you know, like I, the thing that I learned with tomatoes, you know, I, I it, like with tomatoes, for example, the first, first big lesson for me was like, you know, there, there, if you want to avoid, if you actually want to get a crop of tomatoes, there's like very, two different ways of approaching it. You can either use chemicals um, to ensure, you know, that you're fighting off blight and things like that, or you can enhance the you know the resilience of your tomato vines and use resistant varieties and i feel like i had to relearn all of that (laughs) with with vines like oh yeah resistant varieties like instead of planting instead of just planting the same you know things based on you know popularity or flavor you know what can what people consider uh comfort i guess more than flavor i used to say flavor but i i feel like that's not fair to hybrids that have fantastic flavor favor flavor as well um but that that natural resistance is really important in in what you're planting right right exactly really important. and since i'm jumping back to what you were saying about hybrids but um can you talk a little bit about that like how how the hybrids that you're working what are the hybrids that you're working with and and what do you what have you learned about them over the you know years that you've been doing oh i so much um the hybrids that we're working with are considered cold climate hybrids or varieties. And I think pretty much everything that I have planted has come out of the University of Minnesota's horticulture program. University of Minnesota mm-hmm. and Cornell are uh, probably the two uh, biggest and uh, most creative northern horticulture programs yeah. out there. Cornell has... Um, hybrid varieties that they are working with as well. And then there's some uh, private uh, horticulturists uh, on their own farms who work on their own, but they work also in tandem with either of those universities. And I'm working with kind of, I I guess you would consider the classics. I was just going to interject. I also (laughs) recently, oh, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. No, 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 you go Go ahead. ahead. Sorry. Oh, I was just going to interject that I recently found out about the the breeding programs at Arkansas and Texas that seem pretty robust as well. I mean, they're definitely not the size of of Minnesota and Cornell yet, but they've produced, I was surprised to find out how many new varieties have been produced there as well. 
Um, yeah. And different climates, obviously, probably wouldn't exactly. be as applicable to Vermont, but. Exactly, exactly. Um, and Texas yeah. for a long time has been always uh, kind of at the cutting edge of horticultural work with grapes yeah. um, you know, ever since phylloxera yeah. so, and pre phylloxera. So, um, and Missouri. And also, right. Right. So, I, our hybrids, I think uh, the ones that we've planted here at La Garagista are sort of the classic northern hybrids. We have La Crescent, we, which is a white, we have Marquette, which is probably the most well known red, uh, along with Frontenac Noir. Mm-hmm. There are two uh, sports of Frontenac Noir. There's a Frontenac Gris and a Frontenac Blanc that we have planted. We mm-hmm. have Saint Croix, which is an older uh, vine, as well as the, the Frontenac Noir is also older. And we also have Brianna, uh, which yeah. is a white grape. Um, and we have that in one of our vineyards over in the Champlain Valley. So we have seven altogether, and they are, we have co plantings in each of the vineyards. Um, the two vineyards at the home farm here in the mountains have the same co-plantation of uh, six different varieties. And then in the Champlain Valley, we've got four in the Virgin's Vineyard, which is Marquette, La Crescent, Brianna, and Frontenac Gris. And then in our West Addison Vineyard, which is right on Lake Champlain, there are two, that's Frontenac Noir and La Crescent. And those were all things that were, well, the vineyards in the Champlain Valley had been planted before we came along and we took them over, uh, began leasing them. And the ones that we've planted here in the mountains, you know, they were all things that had a good track record already here in Vermont. People were already working with them. They had, you know, an excellent survival rate. They were making wine. So they were the ones that uh, for me seemed like the best bet you know, back in the early 2000s, um, mid 2000s. There are now a host of other varieties that are being planted here. There's one called Atasca. Uh, there's um, yeah. uh, Petite Pearl, Crimson Pearl, Verona. Uh, so some other interesting things. Uh, Lacadie Blanc, there's some Lacadie Blanc, which is traditionally planted up in Nova Scotia. It's finding its way here in Vermont, which is pretty cool. And there are always new things coming along that uh, there are vineyards here that have test sites and who work with places like Cornell and University of Minnesota in trying new yeah. varieties out. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually growing a couple cuttings this spring of Marquette here in Los Angeles. So oh, spreading great. A... <laughs> great. Yeah, see how that does here. I think, you know, I think and it does hope to be actually, doing some more. Yeah, I, I think it does quite well in warmer climates. I know someone who's growing them in the high desert in Oregon, growing Marquette. It, uh, obviously, it's oh, cold well. there in the winter. But I think that there's also right. uh, quite a number of plantings in Missouri and Arkansas, uh, Nebraska. Yeah. Yes, places that also have some cold winters, but uh, Arkansas is pretty temperate, so as is Missouri. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm That's excited. I, I hope to plant more. I, I, yeah, I'm, I hope to plant more. Some of the ones, I mean, La Crescent, I've had so many beautiful wines made with La Crescent, um, yours included, and just think it's a fantastic white grape to work with. Um, and yeah. 
Yeah, thank you. I mean, I, I there's others. It. I mean, there's so many others. So many others. So Tom, many others. of course, we we met in yeah we met in person at Vidinord, and of course, you know, three of those hybrids that you mentioned are Tom Plockers, um, and and he's I've been you know emailing with him about getting Petite Pearl growing out here in California as well, or in Verona as well. He sent wonderful, he sent me a bottle wonderful. of uh, a, a wine made in Colorado at like a mile high in the in the western, you know, the uh, Grand Junction area. Um, that's actually, it's like, I, I think it's 95% Petite Pearl in Verona and 5% Morvedra or something like oh, that. Oh, and wow, it's cool. stunning, stunning. <laughs> Very stunning cool. Wine. Very yeah. cool. Yeah, well, yeah. My, my colleague, uh, Camila, uh, Carillo, uh, who is the the creative force behind uh, the label La Montanuela, um, and she and I work here together yeah. at La Gista too. She's working with Verona and just released a really beautiful uh, sparkling red pet net with it, um, blended with a little bit of Frontenac green. And uh, yeah, she's super excited to have an, and she's got Petit Pearl also in that vineyard. So. Um, yeah, very exciting. Oh, so how how are these, I mean, you can talk about any or all of these, how are they doing viticulturally in terms of their their neediness um, and, and maintenance requirements, uh, <laughs> especially given, you know, the challenges of, of farming anything there uh, in yeah. hot, humid summers and, and yeah, you know, you know, it's, it's now funny. with especially the variability that we've been seeing. Right, right. Uh, you know, it's funny when now that hybrids are so much a part of our wine conversation these days, there are a lot of people who have rightly so um, really focused on their resistance, their their ability to resist disease, resist frost, uh, and their resilience. But I think a lot of people think, okay, I can just plant these and then I can forget about it. Um, maybe if you were living in the South mm. of France, you could do that, <laughs> but, uh, or Los if, Angeles, I'm hoping or Los, <laughs> you're right. Or Los Angeles. So <laughs> though you've had rain and you had some snow this winter. Um, so things may be That's changing true. for you. <laughs> um, it, you know, I think that we it's hope. important to remember <laughs> that they are, yes, uh, they have a leg up in terms of resistance and resilience, but we have to remember that, those things go hand in hand with good farming uh, and those things yep. become unlocked within the plant if we are paying attention to our farming. So in a place like Vermont, which is um, cold in the winter, uh, we have humidity in the summer. We have pretty high heat, uh, very humid. We had a drought last year for an example, but we can also have rain. Um, and of course, nothing is as it seems or should be, <laughs> seems like it should be anymore. Um, so, you know, traditionally we've had to pay a lot of attention to fungal dise diseases because of water and humidity. And, you know, when we're in a season that maybe has a drought, those things are much less prevalent, but we still have to pay attention and be what, and, and also, I mean, we have to be paying attention because so in the past 15 years that I've been farming these grapes, I've had to look for these fungal diseases. But I know that any minute, those things could change. And I have to pay attention to be ready for that. Uh, the wonderful thing that I think um, that is so important about working with hybrids is their diversity, 
their genetic diversity, which allows for adaptability. And, you know, we're seeing, you know, we have all these different circumstances that are kind of coming our way, whether it's rain or drought or humid um, or cold or warmer winter, the vines are able to pivot pretty quickly and adapt themselves to whatever is coming along. You know, they have this genetic grab bag that gives them information um, to be able to respond to their location, to um, the microclimate, to the microbiome. So um, while we still have to watch, be observant, pay attention to our farming, we do have this added <laughs> um, bonus, if, if you will, not only of the resistance and resilience, but of the adaptability. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, no, I, I think so much of perhaps the um, stereotypes about hybrids came from people not treating them like as thoughtfully and as carefully as they should be treated, both you know viticulturally and and in the cellar. Um, it seems like it seems you know it seems like revisiting some of the things that have been rejected. And treating them with the, you know, the sort of viticultural advances and knowledge that we have now, as well as the seller um, skills, like seller craftsmanship that they deserve, turns out they make pretty good wine. You know, like, turns out they aren't that bad. Um, Have you found that as well? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've always regarded them like, well, so my background is in Italian wine, and my specialty was Italian. Uh, indigenous varieties, uh, regional varieties. So my approach has always been, these are my regional varieties. And why wouldn't I treat them in the same way that a wine grower in Piemonte or Chianti or Burgundy uh, or Roussillon are going to treat the varieties that are traditionally grown there? So... um, uh, that was always my uh, view, and you know that is what we kind of set out to do, and have continued to do, and I think is really important. You know, wherever you are, you treat those and whatever vines you have, you have to treat them with love and respect, just like you know any wine grower anywhere. <laughs> yeah, Stephen Castles, uh, he says, treat them like real grapes. Yeah, yeah, yes, because um, they are real grapes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what I wanted to mention, I mean, I wanted to just compliment you. I think your photography is stunning. I mean, it makes the mood, it makes the emotion that I feel when I think about what you're doing because of the images that I know you've created to capture that. that. And I think that's such a gift. And I want to learn anything I can from you about how to do that. <laughs> um, any advice Thank about you. photography, please. Uh, okay, but also, okay. um, yeah, <laughs> but also, I, I mean, I think it would be beneficial for anybody who's who's creating a wine brand or, or, or a brand of any kind. Honestly, you have, I think, an, an immense amount to teach because it really is like if anybody should just go to your, your website and just scroll through and you you can't help but feel like you it is it's like you know like when a story you know you you're listening to a good story reading good story because you're it's moving it's moving you and that's like your your photos do that as well with everyone there's some emotion some like very it's very charged with emotion um i but also i i 
wanted to mention or wanted to ask you about your your change of well, not change of name, but the this addition of a name to La Garagista of uh, Domaine de la Forêt. Mm, and yes. could you yes, talk I... about why you did that and what that means to you to the, the domain of the forest? Why is that meaningful? Yeah. Yeah. And of course, I'm sure I've confused a lot of people <laughs> with that, um, but I'm not confused. <laughs> uh, and I think that's probably the most important part. Um, so, you know, La Garagista, we are La Garagista. We will always be La Garagista. Um, I think there's no me, there's no escaping <laughs> La Garagista. Right. Um, but when I when I started, you know, that name was so applicable because, um, you know, for a number of reasons, uh, I was making wine in our garage. Uh, the 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 garage had this um, uh, was a symbol in a way uh, because our when we bought our farm there was an original garage on the property. And when we bought it, that was the best looking building <laughs> on the property. Over time, yeah. we worked on the house. The house became the the better building and the garage <laughs> became this little ramshackle number. And Caleb, um, my husband, redesigned a new uh, sort of barn garage and he dismantled the old garage, which was made out of um, this beautiful uh, Quebec cedar. And he uh, started building things with it. Uh, he started building tables, uh, which we have all over the farm, these big, long farm tables. We had them in our restaurant. He started building raised beds for our gardens with it. With it. So it had this kind of meaning right. of, you know, regeneration, uh, upcycle, mm. reuse. Um, and it that original garage nice. became this place that we grew things that contained these things that we grew in the garden. And then also this place where we would gather together at these tables. Um, so there was that, that element. And then there was this element of the new garage, uh, which at the time we built it, we had no idea that it would become uh, a tiny little winery. Um, but shortly after we did build it, it did become that. So we went from this, like the garage that became these other things centered around food and wine and farming. And then we started this wine project. And then, of course, there is the garagiste movement in France, which while our wines are very right. different than the style of wines, I think that those producers made back in the, the late seventies and eighties, the ethos was the same of you can make wine anywhere and in any building. You do not need a great Chateau. You do not need premier crew vineyards. You can do it wherever you are. And so those things um, yeah. were really uh important parts of how the name La Garagista came about. And then of course, you know, ultimately it means the woman who makes wine in her garage. So super right. fitting. It's a very literal very meaning literal. to it as well. Very, very literal. It also means a mechanic, <laughs> <laughs> which I'm not there yet, but oh, yeah. um, I'm an, I aspire <laughs> to be um, somebody who's savvy about that. Uh, so, you know, obviously over time, as we've grown, we moved out of that original garage space. We, Caleb designed and built a, a more formal winery, uh, for us that uh, interestingly enough, that 
early little garage space um, that was the first winery is now where our little tasting room is and where we do our pop-ups. Um, so it's still alive and well. Uh, but we, you know, we went from these little mountain vineyards to then leasing these other vineyards in the Champlain Valley. We uh, planted a second vineyard here in the mountains. We had an opportunity uh, in 2021 to purchase one of the vineyards in the Champlain Valley. And that had a little vineyard house on it. And it's got a little garage that um, we hope will be a fermentation space also. So as we've grown, um, I don't know, it just sort of struck me one day that it was it had become, you know, and we're farming, veg- still farming vegetables here and their gardens and there's the orchard and the orchard is growing that we, it was more than La Garagista. And we are mm-hmm. on the edge of the forest here in the mountains. We're in meadows surrounded by forest. We're in a protected forest preserve called the Shadigi. Uh, And then we are also uh, on the edge of the lake and have forested area around our West Addison Vineyard, and there's a pine grove right there. Um, there's less forest around the Vergenz Vineyard, but it was really kind of this idea, and it goes back to this idea that we talked about at the beginning, a forest edge ecology also where the excitement takes place. And, uh, you know, I'm also my, I am also a writer, <laughs> and I am very drawn to the romantic. So, you know, the domain of the forest or even you know, as I think about as we grow more, it's almost like the lost forest, you know, the forest that we are mm. reclaiming, um, that we have a hand uh, that we can partner with to reclaim as a vibrant ecological uh, landscape. Um, you know, this idea of Domaine de la Forêt encompasses all of what we do for me. It encompasses the food that Caleb makes and grows the fruit trees that we grow that go into food and into fermentations, the wine that we grow, uh, the food that we share with people and the wine that we share with people here at the table at the farm. You know, it's that's for me why this other name um, to kind of envelop everything uh, has become important. Yeah, there's a really interesting turn I mean, I, I don't know if you did this intentionally. I'm, I'm guessing you did that. You know, La Garagista is is, uh, is sort of self looking, and then this new name points outward toward you know the the source. Um, is that something you considered as well? No, <laughs> um, but I love it, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm definitely going to think about that now. Um, you know, I, I think most things that I do and that Caleb and I do together happen um, very organically. Um, we sort of find ourselves at the edge of a pre- precipice and it's not too hard to jump off. Yeah. Um, so that's yeah. kind of how all of these things have happened. Um, and I think that there, uh, I think there are uh elements that are wiser than we are that maybe lead us in philosophical mm. directions um like what you're saying you know because i think that's it is really apt yeah. you know the um the domain of the forest is is that looking outward connecting with um the 
connecting with that natural outer world uh and la garagista is in the middle of that right you know that's that's my role right. in it um or you know our role as right. a team of la garagista um our role right yeah i love that that's wonderful you're giving I, me lots of good ideas have you encountered the books of <laughs> diana ba- <laughs> have you encountered um diana beresford kroger's books or her talks um, or anything at all do you know her stuff it, Yes, I do. My laptop is currently uh, sitting on it. <laughs> ah, fantastic. Yes, Which one? Our um, Breedum America? To Speak for the Trees. And that oh, is that I'm yeah, reading that's... right now. Yes, it's so good and so inspiring. Oh, so great. Yeah, yeah. she's, she's yeah, it, it's, it's, a, it's a walk through the forest um, to just read her books. Uh, yeah, it, I'm very... I mean, what you you're talking about this the the domain of the forest. It it recalls for me this connection that I made when I was in in Rome. I also have like a special connection to Italy. That was another thing that we share. But oh. in um, uh, the 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 park in central Rome, I forget what it's called. The um, um, you might know, but uh, where the Temple of Diana is. Yes. Okay. Yeah. The, the forum. Yeah. Well, it's no. It's in like it's the. Big, it's there. It's sort of like Rome Central Park, but it's called. I can't remember. I should look this up because I talk oh, about it enough. Uh, um, but it, yeah, it's sort of you know just a giant park, even bigger than Central Park. You can roam all over. There's hills and trees and soccer fields and or things that get used as soccer fields, whether they are or not, <laughs> um, and gardens and things like that. And there is just this gazebo that's called the Temple of Diana and the inscription on it is Noctiluce Silvarum Potenti, like to the mighty nightshine of the forest. And oh, that, that has resonated for that. me in a lot of different ways. And it's like, I, yeah, I still don't even know what it means, but I actually named one of our wines Noctilucens in, in honor, you know, and in, in sort of like as a meditation on what that word means. And it, you know, it's a, it became a word in English and it's just amazing to me that we have this word that means nightshine. And then that this inscription oh, yeah. exists talking about the the night shine of the forest. Um, and yeah, I thought you might jive on that as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, something, yeah. to, something to look into. Yeah, um, I also love, love that, you know, the domain of the forest is the domain of the forest is that is, is like the forbidden place. You know, it's the place of like, don't go into the woods at night kind of thing. And Right. You know, the place right. of fairy tales and, and it's scary and it takes courage to find out what's in there um and you have to sort of transgress yeah. our normal sort of human limitations and things to to, to get there right um, and, it's, it's and you the, might find some wild vines yeah yeah and it's the place of magic right it's a it's a place yes of thing, yeah. fairy tales magic um transformation uh and it's where it's where everything starts what you know it's the origin um and yeah. you know, I think that that's yeah. uh, those are all really uh, important things to contemplate, you know, and to think about. And they do the forest draws us in in that way. You know, it is both um, yeah. the siren song of the forest. But you're right. There's um, it's does t- it takes courage uh, to enter into that forest because it's uh, it's so much bigger than we are. Uh, and unknown yeah it's like going to the bottom of the sea yeah it's unknown we don't know what's in there yeah um 
but we know it's the yeah. origin of some kind of energy uh, or magic. Oh, I love that you brought up the sea. It, yeah, it 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 does to me seem like a like the terrestrial analog for the ocean is the forest yeah. in a way. Yeah, um, I think so. And I think that Rome Park I, is it Villa Borghese? Is that what you were thinking? I think that's, that's it. That's yes. it, Borghese. Yeah. That's it. Thank you. Yeah. You're <laughs> I, I also love, I mean, I'm just now riffing on vines and the forest edge, but you, know, you think of like they occupy vines, grapevines particularly occupy this special place within any ecosystem in that they sort of weave together every story in the, in an ecosystem. So like from the, from the ground, from below the ground, all the way up to the top of the canopy, the highest mm -hmm. canopy. Mm -hmm. And they, can thrive at every level and they can weave every level together into sort of like a, an integrated whole. Um, but I, I sort of love vines for that as well. It's sort of my, my yeah, fascination and, and, and love of vines. I'm, and again, it's about that adaptability. Go on, go on. Yeah. It's the, it's about their adaptability. Yes. If they are left to their yes. own, if you plant it, plant a vine in the middle of an open field, it will crawl along the ground. But if you plant it on the edge yeah. of, a, of a hedgerow or the forest, it will climb up a tree. And it has all these different ways of surviving. It will either grow, just simply grow bigger in order to survive, or it will make fruit in order to survive. And depending on what those circumstances right. are that it's growing in, it'll do one or the other and sometimes both. <laughs> um, and they're really, right. you know, they're, they're, they're preternatural in a way. Um, you know, the way they climb, uh, the way tendrils grab onto things, uh, they're, they're really fascinating, really fascinating plants. Yeah. I love, I love that they cling, but they don't strangle as well. Right. There's something exactly. nice about them. Exactly. That way. And, They've and learned how to play nice. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. Um, and historically, you know, thinking about, you know, this idea of the forest and trees and vines, they were, they were grown on trees as they're, uh, as they're trellising. Yeah. Um, so yeah. it's a, there's a very natural, um, marriage between the two. Yes. I'm, I'm hoping to revive that marriage actually with a piece of land in, in New York. We'll, we'll have to talk more about that. Um, but yeah, that's, that, yeah, I'd love to do a whole vineyard that yeah, way. Likewise, likewise something i've been thinking about a lot as well oh fun all right yeah yeah so oh yeah i mean <laughs> i'm glad it's out there it's in the it's in the ether it's yes yeah, <laughs> it's in the it soil is. Um, it is it is well can i can i ask you some some practical questions um how so your mountain location is is sort of your home base is that right yes that's right it's yeah and we, then we, the the vineyards down Sorry, the vineyards down by the lake are are your satellite vineyards. Are you do you own those vineyards? Do you lease them? Are you farming them for the owners? How does that work? Right. So uh, here in the mountains, that's where we live. That's where uh, the winery is, and our original vineyard gardens, orchard, etc. We have a second vineyard here in the mountains right across the street from the winery that is land owned by friends of ours uh, and we farm it together uh, we incorporate okay. the fruit from both sides of the street 
uh, work together to make um, a handful of cuvées from the, the home farm. Then down in the valley, we started leasing these two different parcels from the same gentleman back in 2013. In 2021, we had the opportunity to buy one of those parcels. And that is uh, a vineyard in West Addison. And it also has this little vineyard house on it, which we had been renting for a little bit uh, prior to being able to buy it Um, because it's an hour and a half away. There's a lot of commuting. Uh, I was so going to say, allows, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it allows me, um, or if Caleb's coming over to help prune or do things in the gardens over there, that uh, you know we have a place to stay, we have a place to put harvesters up, we have a place for um, uh, winery guests to go. You know, it's a, it's been a really great addition, yeah, uh, to um, great our life <laughs> has made our life a lot easier yeah um and then we still lease the <laughs> the one vineyard uh in the champlain valley as well so so technically we're leasing right. two vineyards one here in the mountains one in the champlain valley and then we um are able to uh we have the we have the we have the privilege to um I hate using the word own, um, but we I know I know that. what you're struggling with. I I'm totally really feel that. Yeah, best way to say that we um, we have the opportunity to uh, have these two properties um, that we care for. Yeah, yeah, I struggle with that same yeah. idea as well. Yeah. It's yeah, it, it's it's funny when you I mean, especially when you think about the land. How I mean, ownership is such a weird thing. Um, it's such a weird. It's such a weird thing. It's such a weird thing. And I and I think of it <laughs> as having the opportunity to buy the privilege to work with the land. Um, but there's no succinct way to say that when you're trying to describe something like simple and logistical. Right. right? Like, <laughs> right. you know, do you lease it? Do you own it? Do you farm it for somebody else, you know, to answer those questions? So I, I'm working on it. <laughs> and yeah. <laughs> And I, I just looking just a couple other practical questions about your viticulture. Do you find that you need to till? Are you working no till? Are you working with animals? I, I noticed a picture where you had crops. It looked like crops planted down the middle of a vine row. That, and I'm wondering what that was, and if you continue to do that. I'm just very yeah. curious about these yes. details. So um, when we. My farming process has evolved to, uh, if we are going to be planting a new area, we do break the ground um, to prepare it. Uh, we seed it with cover crop. Um, we, you know, try and take a year or two to get it properly prepared for accepting vines. Then I uh, start to let the native cover crop come in. And ultimately, I want to be working in a given vineyard as much as I can, no-till, and uh, working with the native cover crop because the native cover crop is what guides me and gives me information about what's happening at a soil level in the vineyard. Uh, It's how I make farming decisions based on the other plants that are cohabitating with the vines. By and large, we are no-till. Uh, there in the Champlain Valley, we are on a really intense clay hardpan, about one to three feet above a lot of limestone and shale. 
So there are times, depending on uh, what's happening and what's been happening cyclically over a few seasons, in which I, I find that the the soil does need to be lightly tilled to be broken up a little bit to get some light and air in there um, and to, you know, get some new plants uh, so that we don't get like a single plant starting to colonize, um, which can happen in really, really heavy clay uh, that is really dry in the summer uh, and can get really compacted. Uh, so, you know, maybe... I might till say in that for Jen's vineyard very lightly, just a couple of inches down uh, every three or four years, um, maybe even longer mm. than that, as we see uh, what kind of plants are coming. I mean, we certainly have lots of dandelions and wild carrot in that vineyard, which does a lot to naturally till, um, you know, it creates those macro sure, yeah. pores in the soil. Um but sometimes that um, it can just get really bound up and you can see it affecting the fruit set in the vines. Uh, and when we start to see yeah. a little bit of that happening, we will, um, we will use, uh, a, a, like I said, that light tilling. Uh, I'm really hoping we do work with uh, sheep and rotational grazing. My hope is also that the work that they do will, um, either allow us in those clay vineyards to not have to till at all or to even lengthen that period of time in which we might find that we need to do it. And when I when I say that we till, it's like once a season if we're going to do that um, in, a, right, right. in that long period of time. Uh, it's not like tilling, you know, every other week or, you know, once a month or something like that. But I'm really, uh, the sheep, we've been working right. with the sheep. This will be our fourth year now doing the rotational grazing in all the vineyards and uh, their part of their benefit is to um, help work the soil. So, um, so we'll see. Um, but we are, yeah, we're yeah. primarily no-till and, and primarily native cover crop. Oh, and you were asking about the vegetables. So um, are the plants growing down? So on yeah. the home farm in the original vineyard and the home farm vineyard, uh, we do grow uh, things between rows, um, whether that's flowers, we've done some vegetables, and that's a very old uh, Piemontese technique where they would grow corn, beans, um, and other legumes uh, between rows. They you know, had a more um, companion planting ethos in the vineyard, and I found that really interesting yeah. uh, historically, and that was something that I wanted to try working with here. Uh, so at the original vineyard, you know, everything is bleeds into each other. You know, there are flowers and vegetables in the orchard. There are flowers and vegetables and vines together in the vineyard, in the flower garden, in the vegetable garden. You know, we've got everything kind of speaking to each other. And we do a lot of experimentation with companion planting uh, on the on the home farm vineyard site. Mm. That's yeah, I love that. I and I, it I just hadn't seen it done in in such narrow rows before. Um, uh, so I, I wondered I how that worked out. Yeah, and I don't recommend that. <laughs> um, you know, unless unless yeah. maybe in LA, um, if it's drier. You yeah, know, that's <laughs> it's all I've got to work with here. Yeah. Yeah, if it's if you're not having to get in there to um, spray uh, for fungal diseases. Um, I mean, I guess you guys do get mildew out there, but, 
um, it's yeah, when, powdery. So in the home farm vineyard, it is all experimental. So we have uh, rows that are plants that are four feet apart and rows that are four feet apart. And then we have rows that are, you know, much wider, um, wider planting between wider spaces between plantings. And we did all of that to kind of figure out what we felt was the best um, ratio uh, for doing all the things that we want to do and for the plants themselves. And we've landed on, you know, six feet between vines, uh, eight feet between rows in the champlain valley excuse me it was done much wider um it was planted before us and i think we have 12 feet uh rows and it's eight feet between plants uh and that i think was because people were trying to set themselves up for mechanical harvesting if that was ever going to go that that direction uh which is certainly not something we're interested in but uh it is really interesting to see uh all the differences in planting and how what the plants do within those circumstances. It's a lot of good data. Yeah. I mean, I imagine with four foot rows, you're all hand tended in, in those rows at least. Is that right? Absolutely. I mean, and you know, it's a backpack sprayer and we do have um, a very small vineyard uh, mower and tiller. uh, So we can get in between, it just fits in between those rows. Um, if we need to to use that for any reason, but uh, it's it is too it's pretty snug. It's pretty snug, uh, yeah. and particularly <laughs> yeah. for um, how um, uh, what's the word I want to use? Energetic these vines can be. Um, right. Right. Yeah. 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 So I, you know, yeah, I in mean those that's rows, my spacing here. Right. Yeah. Um, I. In those rows, I plant, I'm not working as much with planting other kinds of uh, crops um, just because it is really hard to to work in there. Um, but yeah. we have other rows yeah. that um, are wider that we do do that in. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah. I did meter by meter in one vineyard and, and I became so frustrated that I planted, oh, wow. I, when I planted yeah. again, I planted uh yeah f- four by five i mean you can't even turn around in a meter by meter spacing no, like no, it's like you're exactly. knocking off you have it's to crazy. go sideways i thought i would be very yeah exactly yeah <laughs> and you just get covered with whatever you're spraying with i mean it's a great yeah, incentive exactly. for organic you know organic sprays but exactly, um, exactly. You, you know i just like I would spray with cinnamon oil and then I'd come out and I'd be pink because, you know, cinnamon oil is, is pretty, you know, stingy yeah, to your raw yeah. skin. Yeah. It's fun. Um, so, you know, I, you have been a big, uh, I, I, I mean, I've, I've said this to other people, but I think you've really helped steer the reputation of Vermont wine to being, you know, for lack of a better word, fine natural wine which I think is a great legacy, <laughs> you know, not that you're looking for a legacy at this point in your life, but you're, you know, you're finding your way and still learning. But I think you've mentored so many people and, and I think encouraged so many people, if not mentored them in, in this, what is becoming almost like a, you know, what Vermont is known for, especially among, um, you know, a couple generations of the younger generations now who are who are starting winemaking or have been winemaking for the last few years. Um, can you talk a little bit about 
you know, that community and, and what it's been like to be part of that at, you know, from this, you know, early stage? Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's such an exciting place to be making wine right now, uh, because we have, uh, so much energy and a lot of young people doing the work here. And, you know, I, I consider myself, um, as part of a continuum, you know, I think I was mentioning before that there were a host of people who started wineries here back in the late 90s, mid to late 90s. And they were, you know, they put in the infrastructure, they planted, they trellised, they set up tasting rooms. Uh, they, they were definitely working with kind of a California concept of the, the tasting room uh, growing wine for the tasting room, tourism traffic. Uh, it was a way for Vermont land to be kept in agriculture and to create a value-added product that would allow the farm the, the farmland to be uh, kept in that current use. Um, and there were, you know, some wonderful people who got that ball rolling. When Caleb and I came along, uh, that had been, the, the setup had been done. And I, I feel like we came in as part of a second wave um, or the beginning of a second wave of producers who saw that there was potential to make uh, really great wine here and that there that this landscape had a lot to express through wine. Uh, and then, of course, we have this, I, what I would call the third wave, uh, which are folks that have uh, worked with us, who still work with us, who are now producing wine and developing labels and planting vineyards or taking over uh, other vineyards, finding abandoned vineyards, um, all that kind of interesting stuff. So it's we've got this great kind of um, community tree, if you will. It's almost like, you know, grandparents, parents, <laughs> <Yes>. kids, <laughs> uh, ancestry, whatever. Yeah. You know, we have we have some ancestors here, which is great. Um, and it's a we're we're a really small community. I think maybe there are 10 of us that are working in a, you know, organic, biodynamic, natural wine ethos. But that's pretty great for a new uh, a new burgeoning region, and that all of the new producers are choosing to work in this way. Um, I I find that kind of um, amazing and incredible, actually, and that it's yeah. as a model. Uh, I think that it is. I I hope that it's inspiring to a lot of other places. Uh, who are either starting out or have either been there for um, a long time <laughs> and thinking about, you know, converting, right. converting vineyard land to, uh, you know, more organic and regenerative practices. Um, so, you know, it, that, in it, that kind of environment that we're, agricultural environment that we're in right now here is uh, wonderful. And, and because we're small, we're able to be really supportive of each other. And uh, that feels really special. Uh, and I'm not sure um, that it happens anywhere else in quite the same way. Uh, we're kind of, you know, I usually hear about new wine regions that are at the place that we are. A lot of people have said to me, 
like, okay, you're about to go through kind of a rocky period. <laughs> you're getting just big enough <laughs> that, you know, folks are going to start peeling off and there's going to be a lot of difference of opinion. And um, it, it could be, you know, it could be 10 years of, um, uh, of a little bit of a rougher ride, but I, I kind of feel like it's the opposite that we're becoming more all for one and one for all. And that is really, I find that really special. And that that is one of the special things about being here in Vermont. And I mean, I feel myself, uh, I am thrilled and amazed and inspired to be working with three other young women who have started their own labels and also devote their time and energy to La Garagista. Um, You know, both Caleb and I feel really fortunate to have this incredible team and then to be able to, in turn, support them and, you know, offer them things like space and uh, equipment and uh, a place to, to work collectively. And and we all have our own thing going. We all work for La Garagista. And then we also have collaborations that we do together. So I think pretty yeah. unusual uh, and and wonderful. Yeah, it's really, I, I know it is very cool. And I, you know, have now talked to quite a few folks from Vermont because of, you know, I see the same very cool thing happening and, and think it's a, you know, sort of a cutting edge for the potential future of where wine could head in that sense, because it's, I always think the, you know, that the being on the, on the, on the edge of, you know, what's possible with wine because just of the, the natural climate and things that you have to deal with there, um, leads to innovation, leads to resilience. It leads to, you know, a different kind of thinking yeah. about it. You know, it leads to new ideas and generation of, of different approaches. And, and I, I, I'm definitely seeing that happen. And, and I'm seeing that collaboration and, and supportive nature between, you know, everybody that I've talked to. Um, I mean, of course I'm probably biased because everybody I've talked to is like one degree of separation from you or somebody else, you know, who they they are, but, but, uh, but it's, yeah, I, it's definitely a very cool, uh, environment to, to see and be jealous of from the outside. (laughs) Um, Well, come, come to Vermont. (laughs) I I know. No, I had a great time there. I definitely want to come back. Um, it's, it's fun. I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm working on it. I'm Good, working okay, on something. Great, great. Um, do you want to talk about any? I'm I'm curious, just in terms of your winemaking, how it's maybe evolved. Um, and I just wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about any of the the wines that you, how your winemaking has developed, and and where you are with it now, and and some of the interesting things that you're doing with your wine now. What what that what your winemaking looks like. Yeah, I had a, a kind of a a revelation uh, maybe at the new year or at the end of harvest last year. I guess it was at the end of harvest last year, and I wrote an essay about this, which was the um, and I looked at a specific wine, and it was the evolution of a wine, and looking at how a wine that I started making in 2013 has evolved uh, to how I approach it now, and. I would say that, you know, all of the wines that we're making have gone through similar kinds of evolutions and that you can't help but have that in a new wine region, right? Because nobody's done anything ever before. Uh, So there's no 
there's no information, there's no uh, longevity, there's no history to fall back on, which is both exciting, but also daunting. Uh, And, you know, you have to, you end up learning, everybody ends up learning by the seat of their pants, how to make a specific wine. I mean, we can take these techniques that we have learned from other places that we read about, that we taste in other wines, and we can apply them. But, you know, we don't really know how they're going to work out until we've done that for a period of time over several years. And we make, you know, small variations in the way that we do them. And, you know, the the season itself impacts how, how you do them. So, you know, I, when I first started making wine, my one of my mentors, a, a man named Bruno Di Concilis from Campania in Southern Italy, he said, your first official vintage that you're going to make, you're going to make everything like an old Italian peasant. You're going to, you know, obviously <laughs> hand pick, you're going to hand a stem, you're going to foot crush, you're going to um, press in a little basket press, you're going to uh, ferment everything in a demijohn. And you're going to, you know, not use any additives. Um, you're going to do a really raw um, experience. And I was like, yep, that sounds like a good plan uh, right about where I am. Uh, and, you know, I did that, that <laughs> in 2010. And I uh, that is basically how I make wine now um, with these variations <laughs> that have happened over time, and as I've gotten to know the grapes from certain parcels better, and our equipment has changed, and the amount that we're making has changed, and the I've learned things from each season. You know, I incorporate that information into each uh, into the way I make each wine, uh, and I've also been able to, in that process, uh, have been able to become really interested in. Yes, I have this one basic technique, but then I have been able to start looking at other kinds of historical techniques. Like, for example, we have, Camila and I have a, an oxidative wine project that we do. So we're both experimenting with uh, Rancio, where we age the wine in the summer in glass demijohns out in the sun in the garden. But we're also mm. experimenting with floor. And we uh, are very fortunate to have some really old sherry barrels to work with. So, uh, you know, mm. that's a, a technique we're looking at. We're um, it, the technique of making cider co fermentations or cider fermented on grape skins, which was something I, I read about in a, uh, a really old uh, library book, uh, Italian library book. Uh, we incorporate mm-hmm. this idea of skins into other cuvées. So for example, this year I am doing for the first time, I'm making a, um, a rosé from a white wine base that has both red and white skins from other grapes steeped in the wine. Uh, and yeah. that will be a new yeah. rosé and it brings you know something interesting and, and different. They're all grapes from the same parcel, but um, just kind of a different lens so, of of looking at this wine. Uh, so, would you call that would you call that kind of a ripasso style of rosé, or is that a different? Um, is, I don't know ripasso well enough to speak different. to it. Just... We have um, okay. We have a true ripasso style cider that I did as a collaboration with 
Willa, who is, uh, she helps manage our cider program here and she has a label called Disciple. She and I this past year did an early pick cider that we pressed through red and white grape skins, uh, which is, it's a pet nat, but that would be a true Raposo. Mm. The steeping of the skins, um, you know, that's a, I don't actually really know what that is in terms of using <laughs> other grapes to steep in a still wine. Right. Um, but it is the idea that <laughs> sort of uh, the basic, um, you know, way that you make wine, you know, of a, of a wine fermented Got on it. grape skins that's after it's been foot crushed. Uh, and I don't know if there's a precedent. I'm sure, I'm sure there is. We're not um, making anything up. Uh of using <laughs> other skins to incorporate into that kind of maceration. Um, but like, you know, I work a lot with oxygen, uh, some wines that's very much a part of their personality. Um, other wines mm-hmm. are more, uh, you know, have a more reductive winemaking style. Uh, but I, that, I find all of that really fascinating, you know, how, how each season brings something new to the table for each wine and helps refine how we work with that wine. Yeah. It's time I'm sure has been an interesting uh, educator as well, just in terms of seeing how these wines that you started making originally have aged. And I mean, I, I'm curious if that has actually informed any decisions that you've made now about like, Oh, you know, now that I'm tasting this at 10 years old, I'm thinking I want to do this with it when I vinify it this time. I think that the being able to taste the older wines has confirmed what we're doing because we're nice. what we're seeing how the wines are evolving in bottle. Uh, we're seeing really great things, uh, and I wouldn't I, I wouldn't change. That's not informing any changes that I would make. Uh, changes are happening more with um, how things are happening in the field. Uh, As an example, um, (laughs) we have this acre of Brianna in Virgens. And it is, I don't know if you've ever seen or worked with Brianna. It's a really tight cluster. Looks like a little hand grenade. Oh. Yeah. So, uh, and typically it doesn't reach a really high bricks level. It's recommended, I think, by the University of Minnesota to pick between 16 and 18 bricks. And uh, I oh, think wow. the, the highest it gets is like 22. Um, but that it's not, um, it's, it's fruity. It's not, uh, it's not so astringent like another variety might be uh, at that kind of low bricks. That just happens to be its, its sugar threshold. Right. Uh, and if you pick right. that at the beginning of the season... Uh, at the beginning of harvest, as that tight little cluster, that works great. We noticed that uh, if we let it hang, and because it has pretty thick skins, if we're dealing with rain, it will hold up really well during a rainy harvest. Uh, And we can pick it later. uh, And as I said, those skins will hold up really well. However, if it's rainy and you've got this tight cluster, we can also see evidence of sour rot starting. We began doing trials yeah. with pruning and not pruning in all of our vines in Virgens. And we've now come to this conclusion of a way to deal 
or to farm the Brianna is that we prune half of it and that portion we will pick earlier in the harvest season. And we don't prune the other half, which when you don't prune, that cluster extends and you get a lot more space between berries and you get more air circulation and you don't get the sour rot, but you get the... um, you know, the integrity of the skins if you have this rainy or more humid harvest period. And we can pick that at the very end. We can pick it um, this past year, we picked it third week of October. And we're, we pick our blocks over a period of time anyway. We're not picking them all at once. So um, that allows us to blend together these earlier picks and these later picks, but to have a better integrity of fruit during that span of six to to seven weeks that it takes us to pick that Brianna. So that's something that informs maybe the way we're divvying up that Brianna into different cuvées. You know, the sparkling wine might be more predominantly the earlier pick. Uh, The, this little rosé that we're making, you know, middle to early pick. And then we have a wine called Ludor, which is um, a wine that I'm actually hoping I'd like to start working with in Old Barrel. That later pick uh, is um, seems like a, a good match for that. So hmm. that's an example of how what's happening in the field and how we want to work it during harvest affects the decisions that we might make for a certain cuvee. Can I ask, the when you don't, prune you mean like a winter prune so you're getting like lots of growth i imagine the following year are you are you hedging or anything at all like any (laughs) like i'm just curious how that works out (laughs) and what do you do the following year (laughs) yeah that's a really good question so with the (coughs) non-pruning excuse me our vines are old enough and have been farmed in the way that we farm them for long enough that they have some native balance. So we're finding that even though we'll have more fruiting points, uh, we might have uh, longer shoots, that there is balance between vegetation and fruit Mm -hmm. and that the fruit is Hmm. really very sort of perfectly presented to the sun. So we end up not having to do any hedging or leaf pulling. Um, and that's something that has happened over time and I think is uh, based on vine age and on our farming methods. So yeah. uh, that seems to work. And we've been doing these trials. We started doing them in really in 2019. Uh, so we've been doing them for four years now, five years now. Uh, then what we've noticed is that you get, um, you know, you'll get a higher yield the first year that you do it. You get, if you're, um, if you leave them unpruned, that second year will be a lower yield. And then the third year will be back to a higher yield. If you leave for one Wild. year unpruned, uh, and this is for hybrids. I don't know how it shakes out with vinifera. It might be quite different. Uh, the first year... You know, you get this higher <laughs> yield. If we do a hard prune that second year, we'll get a much lower yield. And then the third year, it's, you know, kind of back to a normal, a third year with a normal pruning is a normal year. So 
we are developing a very kind of complicated system of <laughs> of this cycle <laughs> so that we basically That's have amazing. the same yield in a block every year but we can afford in uh-huh. certain rows to have a higher yield or a much lower yield depending on whether it's pruned or not pruned and where it is in that cycle. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. I are you in that Brianna is it a top wire cordon trellis or how's that trained? So, uh, all of our vines are uh a forearm niffin, which essentially looks like a forearm okay. gyo. Uh and you know with the high the top wire looking like a high cordon top Got wire. It. But then there's another lower wire with two arms as well. Right. And do they go up and down respectively? Like the bottom drapes down and the top lifts up? Or are they both going up? They are. (laughs) Up now. This is also also really interesting. So hybrids are considered to be uh, semi-recumbent growers, which means that they grow kind of out and down. We have found that, you know, and I would attribute this to biodynamics, that our shoots are growing up uh, and then they'll arc a little bit out, but they don't truly grow. They don't really grow down. They're always reaching towards the light. And, Mm. um, you know, early on in the farming, we did do hedging. uh, And that is something that we found that we don't need to do anymore. that the huh. that the vines really have oriented uh, themselves, even when those shoots get longer, uh, to the sky, which is pretty. It's pretty cool to see. Huh. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, thanks for explaining all this. And honestly, I feel like we should do a, a whole second show just on your viticulture and winemaking practices because it sounds like there's a just a library of we could go you know wine by wine and learn a new technique and different different yeah, uh, practices in the vineyard really it sounds fun. like and, and super interesting for me <laughs> to sort of think about it in that way yeah 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 um but i in respect of your time I, we should probably wrap up but i want to just ask if you could you know let everyone know you know how they could find out more about you and and maybe try your wines and that kind of stuff of course. Yes. Thank you. Um, so we have a website, lagaragista.com, where you can find out uh, just about anything you might need to know about us. I encourage people <laughs> to sign up for our newsletter, uh, subscribe to the newsletter. That uh, tells people when we're releasing wines on our online web, uh, on our online shop and when those wines are available for curbside pickup it also lets people know what our pop-up schedule is we have just started after a three-year hiatus uh we're back up on our pop-up uh situation (laughs) and we're going to be doing those much more frequently uh in our tasting room and bottle shop so we're super excited about that and so people can can order online or they can come direct to us on those pop-up dates at those times to come buy wine here. Uh, we also have, we're distributing wine. Um, is that in, oh, sorry, on. I was just going to ask about the pop-ups a little bit more. Are they, yeah. is that sort of like, instead of just being continually open for, you know, with regular tasting hours, you do these special tasting moments or it, is it, do you have tasting hours and this is beyond that? 
it, the first, uh, the first and former. Okay, uh, got it, got we, it. So, we aren't in a position to have a tasting room open all the time, so we, got it. you know, are now I think on a schedule of probably having, uh, being open two or three times a month, uh, in the bottle shop where you can taste things as well. And Caleb usually does like a little snack. Uh, we do do things like, you know, um, supper club or farm dinners or uh, where there's a little bit more food, but that's not as frequent. Uh, but that can be, and you find yeah. out about all that by <laughs> subscribing to the newsletter. Um, but we also, we are distributed throughout New England, of course, uh, Vermont, Maine, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, Rhode Island. We're also in New York. We are in California, we're in Quebec, we're in uh, Mexico City, <laughs> we're in uh, Europe, uh, UK, um, Italy, uh, Germany, Austria, Spain, hoping France is going to be coming on soon. Uh, we're also hoping to work with someone in Minnesota uh, for distribution and as well as uh, Pennsylvania this year. So we're starting to nice. expand just a little bit. Well, you're cracking Pennsylvania. That's where I'm from. That's the uh, the uh, state mafia state. I um, I know I know. You. Well, we'll we'll see we'll see we'll see. Um, we're having a great conversation. With <laughs> right. a good wonderful luck. distributor yes. there, but yeah, good luck. Right? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but you know, oh, people. Well, that's great. That's we're we ship to almost all fifty states, so um, that's the surefire way. Um, to do it online or to come uh, curbside or for a pop-up. Got it. Well, thank you so much for, for this conversation and for what you're doing. I really appreciate all of it. And uh, yeah. Oh, thank really you so much, Adam. This glad that we got a chance to talk. Yeah, me too. It's been wonderful. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. And I just want to leave you with this thought or these two thoughts. You know, we will keep learning and changing until the day we die. And there are much more important things to our relationships with each other than whether we agree about some ideas. So have fun out there. Enjoy. Keep learning and focus on the things that bring us together. <laughs>